Hey friends, I'm Stacy and I'm Liz and we love chatting about teen books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? Well, each month we'll feature one book and discuss its highlights. You know, the things that made us love it. We'll also share the things that didn't knock our socks off. And then we'll explore what the book taught us and how it inspired a curiosity of information well after the story finished. So now let's get on with our episode. Welcome to the Curious Reader Podcast. If this is your first time listening, we are so happy you joined us. And if you are one of our faithful listeners, please take the time to review us on Podbeam or in your favorite podcast listening app. Your likes and reviews help us out greatly, plus it helps others find our program. And if you enjoy what we have to say, please take the time to let us know and of course, tell your friends. So because Liz and I like to chat so much, we are going to move right into our book. We do. We chat yeah. so much. We chat too much. <laughs> so we're going to try to rein it in and um, really get down to business here. So, okay, friends. The Last Quintista by Donna Barba Higuera. The story falls into the science fiction genre, and it won the 2022 Newbery Medal Award. And for those uh, that don't know the distinction of this award, let me share uh, what that honor is real quick. See, every year, the Newbery is given to the author of the most distinguished contribution to American literature for children. It is presented by the Association for Library Services to Children, which is a division of the American Library Association. But that's not the only award that this book won. Two awards? Two awards. See, The Last Quintista also won the 2022 Pura Belpre Children's Author Award. And now, I had never heard of this award uh, before, and I think it's pretty spectacular. So let me tell you a little bit about this as well. Uh, the Pura Belpre Award honors Latin A writers and illustrators whose books portray, affirm, and celebrate the Latin A culture experience. And it was first established in 1996, and the award is named after Pura Belpre, the first Latina librarian at the New York Public Library. What do you think of that? Did you know that? I did not know about that. That's a, I, I had never heard about that before, and I wish I had, because it sounds like something really interesting to look into. I'd like to see a list of some of their other winners. Yeah, de- definitely um, take a look at some of those. Um, and I think that when it first started, it was actually like a semi-annual, so it was like every six months there was an award winner, and then it turned into just a few years ago, I think, just um, into an annual. So let's get down to business then and talk about this double award-winning book. All right, here is the synopsis. It is 2061, and the world is about to end. Halley's Comet, which has circled Earth harmlessly for years, has been pushed off course by a solar flare and is heading straight for Earth. In anticipation of its collision, three luxury spacecrafts have been commissioned to carry specific groups of people away from Earth. Scientists, builders, politicians, and other hand-picked groups of this nature will be put into stasis, or hypersleep, aboard these spacecrafts. Their body functions will be halted for a 380-year journey to the new planet of Sagan. 
Now, additionally, there is a group of people known as monitors. There will also be a board, and they are the caretakers. They're tasked with watching over all the people that are in the pods during their journey. So Petra Pena's family is one of the lucky families that is embarking on this journey. Both her parents are scientists, and she also has a younger brother who's going to come along, Javier. And you can imagine that I, you know, I said that they're handpicked people that are on here. So obviously, not everyone from Earth is going to be able to make the journey, is going to get onto a spaceship to make the journey. Um, and so there's a riot of sorts. There's people that are angry, anxious, fearful, and they uh, found out about this departure and they're now trying to make their way to ambush the spacecrafts. So it kind of rushes. Uh, Petra and her family getting uh, into their pods and getting aboard and getting acclimated to this place that they're going to be for 380 um, years. Um, so Petra is being hooked up to the cog that puts her into stasis and something malfunctions and she never quite makes it into her hypersleep. And that is terrifying, frightening, just... Yeah, oh my... like. Think about like sleep paralysis when you're you're asleep and you can't physically get up. And now imagine that for 380 no. years. No, um, that's terrifying. I don't like thinking about that at all. No, and 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 as you read the book, you realize like this gel is put over them in this pod, and um, you know that's probably to just keep them hydrated. Hydrated. And yeah. And I'm <gasps> I'm not sure about the science, but it feels very science fictiony. Yeah, when I think most um, things you see in science fiction, they do have like some type of gel right. thing that's in those pods. So so can you imagine like not being fully uh, I don't know. It's it's just <laughs> you're so like bad. half drowned, half asleep, but you can't move. So let's fast forward to about 400 years cuz Petra finally awakes to a new group aboard the ship. The monitors have evolved into something called the collective. It's a group of people that favors being the same. Nothing about them is different. Um, and they want to erase the hurt and pain of the past to create a new history with the belief that eradicating all differences and conflict will bring about a perfect utopian society. And, th and that sounds right, maybe, but mm, I'm not sure. Petra does remember the past, though. Remember, I told you there was a malfunction in her um, her stasis pod, and her stories may be the only thing that saves humanity. So, what, anything I missed, Liz, that you think, like, um, well, integral if, to the story? It might be important to mention that this collective, they what they've done is they've erased everyone who was in the pods. So yes. when Petra wakes up, she is the only person who remembers her life before. Yeah. So no one else, no one in the collective remembers Earth. No one remembers right. any stories. No one remembers anything about their history yeah. except Petra. She's all alone, 380 years in the future, on a spaceship, headed towards an unknown planet. Right. And the collective believes that she also does not remember anything. Yes. And she is good at faking it. Yes. So to make sure that um, she is not purged, like the others, uh, she has to pretend that she doesn't know anything, that she doesn't remember anything, and and not be terrified by what the collective is is ultimately looking to do. Right. So that's that's a huge task. That's huge. <laughs> I agree. So how about some hits and misses? So let's talk hits first. I think this is a great book. 
um, to introduce somebody to science fiction because it's not a genre I temp I, I read. Um, but I really liked this. It was not overly complicated. It allowed the reader to gently be immersed in technology and outer space, spacecraft type world building without being science preachy. Um, I could follow along. I didn't feel like I was totally lost on what like some of the terms or some of the things were. Um, it yeah. just made sense. I know some people who love science fiction really enjoy like getting deep into mm-hmm. the nitty gritty of the science of the science fiction. And there's definitely an element of that here. Um, part of like Petra being in hypersleep was her um, having knowledge absorbed into her brain. Yes. Um, and so there are a lot of science elements that she just understands intuitively. And the book does explain a little bit about the science behind, you know, the planet they're going to find. But it's still it's very understandable. And uh, I am one of those people who enjoys science fiction, but doesn't necessarily need to understand <laughs> all the complexities um, of the science behind it. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Sometimes you just like spaceships. <laughs> spaceships that look like praying mantises because that's actually what these like spaceships were described like right like they were like large praying mantis i was trying to like yeah. envision all that like the head up here and the leg yeah, i don't know yeah like i'm kind of imagining like a starship enterprise but like yeah. flipped over okay yeah like a smaller head like a smaller I head i don't know if a- that's correct at all yeah uh the other thing is i don't i don't remember exactly in the book where it says that it was um 2061 like that they got on that that was when Haley's comet was going to end the world um so it took me a little bit to realize that she was actually already in the future compared to like right now right. for us it's like right. a near future yes so yeah. they have the technology for space travel but in other ways it's mostly described as earth as we know it yeah because i think she was talking about one time um <laughs> where um they have to take this mission out onto you know this journey and somebody is maneuvering the hovercraft one right. of the collective and she's just like oh my gosh this guy can't even like <laughs> maneuver this thing properly she's like i could do a better job you know she's almost 13 um she's like i've used a hovercraft before and i'm you know haven't we all <laughs> yes i would like to try that maybe especially like i would like something like that in our cold winters where i don't have to worry about driving on the, on the pavement oh my goodness that's an excellent point wouldn't that be awesome to have that type of technology right now I, I so. hadn't thought about that aspect at all. And that's probably not like when like you as a kid are imagining like a hovercraft. It's probably like not a point that like appeals to you. But like, oh, my goodness. That's a that's a real selling point right there. And I think teens, <laughs> teens, like correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think teens would also love this it's because there I am, you know, when my boys got their driver's license and I was like, there is a spot of snow on the ground. You cannot go out with that car. You know, <laughs> does black are, ice make you anxious? Try hovercrafts. Everything makes me anxious. <laughs> so I think hovercrafts would be um, perfect for that. So, yeah. All right. Len, let's talk about some other hits. Uh, uh, I was pressed for time this month in reading this, so uh, Liz gave me some advice, and of course she was saying that she had been listening to the audiobook like she always does. I usually split it up. I, I, read, the, I read the book um, and I listen to the audiobook. Okay. Not at the same time, but just like switching off. Well, so that I can do it as quickly as possible. <laughs> that is great advice. And so um, I actually did get the audiobook. I, I read the audiobook and the book at the same time. I actually found that I was able to absorb things a little bit better that way. And I really liked it. But 
I loved the audiobook. Yeah, it was like, really, really good. It, it was, was really, really well good. Done. I don't normally like. I've said it before. I don't normally like them, but it was so good. The narrator did a fabulous job of making the reader feel like you were on a spacecraft when dialogue that you know belonged to like an artificial intelligence or a computer source was read. The narr- like was fabulous. I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds like <laughs> that sounds like an artificial intelligence. You know, sometimes a Surrey or an Alexa. Like it sounded like it. It was mm-hmm. so great. Um, the other thing though that I really, really loved about this, remember how I said that the book won an award for affirming and celebrating, um, the Latine culture experience? Well, the Pena family are, um, I believe Mexican American. And when Petra is retelling stories that her grandmother told her, or when she's reliving flashbacks, uh, to conversations with her parents, it's told in Spanish. And so the audiobook did justice to hearing the language being spoken, and it sounded so beautiful. And I think that's the way you need to listen to it because in my mind, I w- you, that's not how I would have said anything. Um, that was just such a great benefit of listening yeah, to an audiobook. I totally agree. Um, the narrator, Frankie Corzo, uh, is fantastic. And I'm like, also, like Stacey, I am not a native Spanish speaker or a nope. Spanish speaker of any kind. Um, so I really enjoyed hearing a lot of the language spoken aloud. And then in addition to that, um, there's so much in this book about like oral storytelling, like the grandmother telling stories, Petra telling stories and speaking them out loud. And so I feel like there are definitely parts of this book that are meant to be spoken out loud. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And so I ended up looking up um, other books in which um, Frankie... Corzo is the uh, narrator for. And so No Filter and Other Lies by uh, Crystal Maldonado uh, is one that's on my reading list right now. And so she's also narrating that audiobook. Uh, so I think I might pick that up. I, you know, that actually was um, one of the contenders for last month's um, podcast when I, you know, gave you three books to look at. Um, <laughs> no Filter and Other Lies was one of those. So I think I'll pick up that audiobook and listen to that. I was, I've changed people. So, other hits here. I overall, I just, I really enjoyed reading this science fiction book more than I thought I would. It made me stop and speculate about life or world different than what I experience. And, um, I never total, I like never want to be put in stasis ever. So Haley's comment, please don't hit our earth because I'm not sure. I mean, I also don't want to be, like, trapped in a spaceship with the same 138 people for 380 years. Well, I wouldn't be alive for 380 of them, but I wouldn't want to be in one for the rest of my natural lifespan. No, I wouldn't either. So both options kind of sound terrible. They do. So, yeah, I don't like that. However, yeah, and like I told you about the gel already, that's creepy. But (laughs) you you, um, spoke about some of those um, science fiction, you know – uh, the word is escaping me, but that are used in science fiction. And you talked about like the downloading of like information into your brain and oh, stuff like, like that. Oh, like sci-fi tropes? Sci-fi tropes. Thank you. Uh, totally want that. So in the story, <laughs> you know, you you Petra has to have her lessons. She has some curriculum that has already been pre-established for her and so that she'll be useful and ready and, you know, not going to miss anything on the 380 years that she is um, in hypersleep. And so she just, you know, downloads right into her brain. And when she awakes, she'll have all that knowledge. And I love that. That is totally like, I <laughs> I am down with that. Like, hey, I need to know some calculus. Right in your head. Boop, boop, boop. I love it. That would truly be amazing. Um, I mean, I mean, 
Well, now I'm thinking about like the the repercussions of that. Like, what else could you download in my brain? Like, what if you accidentally downloaded a virus? What? I don't know. That's not in this book at all. And we're getting a little off topic. No, but that totally could be part of like the science fiction, Collective manipulated. That's right. But I also wanted to say that like, to your point about this being um, science fiction, but accessible to people who Mm -hmm. aren't fans of science fiction, I think part of the reason that it felt that way to me, because I totally agree on that point, is that unlike a lot of science fiction that I've read... Um, through flashbacks and through Petra's strong connection, like to her family, mm-hmm. uh, to their culture, their specific family culture, and also to like just like Earth culture in general, mm-hmm. um, she brings a lot of that with her yeah. on the spaceship. So even though you were on a spaceship traveling to a planet that's light years away, you know, you're traveling with someone who still loves reading Goosebumps books and uh, eating Takis. So it's like, and I, I can't remember really having seen that very often in science fiction before. Like normally you're, you're in a far future where there's right. like a culture that you don't recognize because everything is new and different, or it just doesn't really matter to the story. But in this story, it's very much a part of it. Like, you know, what her grandma's taught her and yeah. just the normal things that she grew up doing in the not too far future that we would all recognize as well. So it yeah. made it feel very like personal. It, it did. And I think that lends itself to the storytelling. Like you have this connection where you're like, yeah, we, we, as a society, even though there's ills and war and awful things that happen, it helps remind us what we can do to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the, the, that was the thing within this, that it made you really think about the here and now and it made it how feel- you would be better. Yeah, and it made it feel more like um like relevant, relevant to us. Yes. And how Exactly. I mean, 2061, that's not that far away. No. So that aspect of it was really interesting. Uh I did, however, have a kind of miss. I feel like I sort of always couch my misses by going, "Oh, it wasn't really a miss." Um but I'm doing that again. Um so for me, uh the collective, like I just wanted to know so much more about the collective. We hear about them on Earth. We know that they're like a faction that like came to be on Earth mm-hmm. and then infiltrated the spaceships. But we only hear about that briefly. Yeah. And I wanted to know, like, it's the near future. So did they, how, for what reason did the collective come into being? Like the people who believe all this, is it because, is there something going on in near future Earth that they're reacting to? Does the author just think that like, ooh, this is something that could arise out of things that she sees in our society today. I don't know, maybe. Maybe. Um, so like, I was really curious to know more about that. And also, once we're on the spaceship, they're just hanging out for like 380 years doing like a whole bunch of stuff. And I just wanted to know so badly what they were doing. They make a lot of changes um, like to themselves. Yep. Um, and, you know, Petra wakes up and it's like a totally new society. So I was just so curious. I was like, what, what was the plan? Are we following the plan? What's going on? I'm so, I'm so curious. And also within the collective, although it's supposed to be this like unified faction where everyone believes the same things and has the same thoughts and feelings and everything, um, we see clearly there were some like dissenters. So people who weren't quite with the program. And so I just wanted to know, were there more of them? 
well, you know, was it really the unified unit that it was supposed to be? Or were people really having all kinds of different thoughts, but just afraid to speak out? Like, I wanted to know more about their individual personalities. I, I'm... Honestly, I'm so ready for like a companion novel yeah. that just like traces the, you know, the collective for those 380 years of space travel. I don't think that that's in the works, but I would like to read that. I don't think that's in the works either. And I also would like to read that because I felt the same way there. there You know, there are some characters that are in the beginning of the book. And so early on, I made connections with them. And yes. I was like, well. Oh, I would happen. You know, like (laughs) you want to know what happened. I want to know how this evolution happened. And there's one character in particular that we both loved very much, very quickly. (laughs) We did. Yeah. And no spoilers, but no. Yeah. So it doesn't go great. Mm, Purge. (laughs) Um, So I think that's evidence, though, a great story writing in this and just how yeah making you connect making, with the characters yeah. so quickly and thinking you know science fiction thinking beyond i was invested in the story here the here and now story but also it made me think like wow there's like even another story here that would be even fabulous to hear yeah about the sinister collective there so. are like multiple ways the story could be told and yeah so i realized the reason that we don't know any of these things isn't because she just didn't choose to write about it it's mm-hmm. because it's all from petra's perspective right and she doesn't know what's going on and she doesn't know who these people are and she's so busy trying to stay alive that yeah. she really doesn't care about the questions that i have right which right. is fair enough <laughs> Um, and so I also had uh, one small miss, and it's, it's it's minor, but Petra has an eye condition, and it's introduced early in the story, um, and she alludes to it a couple times later uh, throughout the novel, but it never goes anywhere, and I'm not fully sure why it was mentioned in the first place. Uh, it doesn't really add anything to the story. It doesn't add anything to the conflict, or it's not part of the solution. I just, I was left wondering, like, why do I need to know this? Yeah, it it caused, like, a little bit of tension in the beginning. And I yeah. I kind of expected more to be happening with that, and it just sort of never came around. I didn't, I know. It was a little bit of a disappointment. Yeah, but, but I mean, that's really minor compared to, like, you know, I know we didn't go through a ton of um, hits because... Ultimately, really, the whole book was wonderful. Yeah, we both just really enjoyed it yeah. overall. Yeah. So, of course, that leads us to any, like, curiosities, curiosities, anything that piqued our interest. And so Liz and I actually ended up having, like, the same kind of thing. So um, I'm going to let Liz take it, though, because she did a wonderful job researching about some of these interests. So take it away, Liz. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so like we said, there's a lot of Spanish in this book, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Spanish yeah. spoken by Petra and her grandmother. And... So one of the things that they always say in Spanish is when they begin a story, um, they start it with the phrase, había una vez, which translates roughly to once upon a time in English. So that made me think, why do we start off fairy tales that way? And do all languages or cultures or some of them do the same Same thing? thing. So I started researching this and I quickly learned that so many different cultures and languages have stock phrases that essentially do the same work as the phrase once upon a time. A lot are pretty similar. So they'll start like once there was or a long time ago. Uh, But some are a lot more interesting. For example, (laughs) in Polish, a storyteller would say beyond seven mountains, beyond seven forests before starting their story. Um, But in Lithuanian, 
uh, it would be instead beyond nine seas, beyond nine lagoons. Mm. In Kazakh, it's a long time ago when goats had feathers, <laughs> which I did not find like the, the origin story of why a goat might have feathers. But again, I'm very curious about that. Curiosities within curiosity. Huh. In Arabic and Farsi and Maltese and Romani, many stories start by saying there was and there was not. In the Hausa language, which is spoken in West Africa, stories start by saying, a story, a story, let it go, let it go, let it come. <laughs> and kind of similar, in Yoruba, which is spoken mainly in Nigeria and Benin, you'd say, here is a story, story it is. And then there's my <laughs> absolute personal favorite, the Korean story starter, which goes once in the old days when Tiger smoked tobacco. And I should be fair, a lot of these... Um, they involve like wordplay yeah. in their original languages. So a lot of these are making like puns and rhymes that really don't translate at all. Um, so we, we're losing a little bit by, you know, translating things kind of literally. But it's so interesting that some are so similar, some are so specific. Yeah. And yet so many different languages use this sort of device, right? Like this story starter. Yeah. So why is that the case in looking into it? Uh, I learned that in one sense, it is like how Petra explains it in The Last Quintista. Um, she explains it to her friends as, oh, we say it because that's how you start a story. Mm -hmm. And it sets the mood. And it does. It makes things feel magical. It lets us know we're about to tell a story. Um, but it also serves the purpose of setting different kinds of stories apart, which is particularly important in like an oral tradition. So, you know, when you're sitting around a fire, telling a story out loud. Um, because most traditional stories in most cultures fall into one of two categories. You have your legends and you have your folk tales or fairy tales. So legends are histories. So they're things that are generally believed to be true, right? These are stories that supposedly happened to your ancestors, to, you know, people in your culture long ago. But we believe that Mostly they happened, even though they might be exaggerated. Um, and on the other side of things, we have folktales or fairy tales, which I will use interchangeably. Um, <laughs> so folktales and fairy tales, everybody knows these stories didn't happen. They are either just fun stories mm -hmm. or they're stories that we use to explain things that happen in the world around us, even though we know they're not true. Right. They have sort of like the truth of how it makes you feel. But they're not, like, actual, literal facts. And so folktales are the stories that start off with these story starters. Um, and so it's just, it's a clue, basically, for your listeners that, hey, we all know this didn't happen. So, it, like, the details aren't important. That's why instead of saying, like, 407 years ago, we say once upon a time. Because it doesn't really matter what that time was. <laughs> like, for example, you know, we... All of us understand that there maybe wasn't really a girl named Cinderella who had a fairy godmother and mice her best friends. So we say, once upon a time, because that means this is just a story. Please enjoy it. It happened a long time ago. Don't ask me when. Um, so, yeah, so it's just a story that we like to tell. And so do you think that within those um, folk tales and, you know, fairy tales, that there's an underlying message lesson 
some morality to be learned or is it just pure entertainment? I mean, I think generally there is. I, yeah. I mean, I think there's a why if we're talking about all world cultures, right? I think there's there's like a huge, you know, Spectrum. wide, <laughs> wide array of things, like yeah. even within, you know, one culture. Yeah. You know, we have we talk about like um, like Aesop's fables, mm-hmm. right? And they're generally like morality tales. Yeah. And I guess you know, even fairy tales also are in I many think ways they have an a element reality. in there. Yeah, that, right. Even if the the morality is just like don't go into the woods alone, right? That's a bad idea. <laughs> um, they're all trying to teach us something. And like I said, like they have the truth of how it makes you feel yeah. and the truth of like the lesson they're imparting. But like, or like bravery and courage, or right. like some type of. Um, you know, characteristic trait that is you want to draw upon. I right. think that sometimes those are in there. And I think that that was um, true for some of the stories in, in here. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Bravery and courage. And um, the storytelling is super important in this book because first it helps keep Petra connected to her past. Uh, it helps her channel the wise words that her grandmother um, had shared with her through stories. And uh, it gives her courage when, you know, she is faced with having to pretend to not remember things and how to take care of the collective and knowing that what, what they're doing is not right. And so I think her, the stories give her those, that courage. And she also believes that sharing those stories will help um, rekindle the purged memories and bring hope to those that are under the collective's control. Uh, Petra is told by Lita, that's her grandmother, to make these stories her own. And at first I thought it was like a little strange, you know, that she was like changing some things. And, um, and then as I started to learn a little bit more about storytelling uh, in the oral traditions, you know, it made a little bit more sense to me. So now many cultures have universal stories that they may have some differences or tweaks that um, are due to culture, uh, religion, tradition, geography. Uh, for example, there's many different universal creation stories, right? There's uh, flood stories for many different mm-hmm. um cultures and you know there might be uh, stories about being careful of tricksters and they use animals like coyotes fox and um wolf but within the same cultures the stories that are passed down have variations and that's just due to the nature of the oral storytelling you know you're verbally passing down a story from generation to generation and the storyteller is bound to have some changes because that's just you know it's the story of the storyteller and right. what is going on for them in that time. Well, another interesting aspect of it is, right, so many of these stories, like mm-hmm. creation myths, like yep. you mentioned, they we have them because, you know, they originally um, described the world around us, right? right? They described the things that our ancestors saw many, many years mm-hmm. ago. And so, yeah, if it's describing the world around them, and then the world around you changes, changes. then your story has to change. So if you're on a totally new planet... Yep. In many ways, that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot you of have sense. to explain the world that is around you now. Yeah. But at first, I was a little like, hmm. And then I was like, hmm. Yeah. Ah, oh, makes a little <laughs> more sense to me now. Ah. So do we have another curiosity, Liz? So one thing that made me very curious. Cur- <laughs> one thing that made me very curiosity, Stacey. <laughs> one thing that made me very curious was when they mentioned the Goldilocks zone. Yes. Um, which is particularly interesting in a story that is about stories. But... <laughs> this Goldilocks zone doesn't really have anything to do with that. Sort of, it does. I'm explaining this badly. Anyhow, the Goldilocks zone is um, 
what we use uh, like in the real world to talk about um, planets that may be able to support human life. So planets outside of our solar system that may be able to support human life because... Uh, the reason we say Goldilocks is because the first thing that scientists look for is where the planet is located relative to the star that it orbits around. So if it's too close, then um, the planet can't support life, mainly right. because uh, water would boil away. Well, also, we I would think your skin away. also would boil yes. away, right? Like it's too hot. It's right. too hot to sustain <laughs> life on it. In this example, uh, water, however, is used. Uh, the ability um, to sustain like liquid water yep. on a planet is used as not the only indicator, but a very good indicator of will this planet be able to sustain yeah. human life. So, if it's too hot, if it's too close to the sun, the water boils away. If it's too far from the sun. Uh, if it's too cold, then the water freezes and it can't ever be liquid. So not so it, too hot, yeah, not, not too, too cold, cold, but just right. Just right. <laughs> so that's why it's called the Goldilocks yes. zone. And this is a thing that, you know, scientists, a term that scientists have been using since the 1970s to oh. describe what they're looking for when they're looking at exoplanets or planets outside of our solar system hmm. um, to determine, you know, their... I guess, usefulness in a future situation like this. I, I don't think that's really what they're looking for. But just when they're analyzing new planets that they have found. So maybe for this, just their, even their own curiosities, right? Yes. I mean, and I don't think it's always so that right. just, we are not going to bore them and <laughs> make our life Determining there. how close, how much like Earth these totally new planets might be as like a point of reference. Um. So what's really interesting is that so scientists have confirmed the existence of 5,000 planets outside of our solar system. Um, and what's even more interesting about that is that most of those were found just recently, like in the past few years. Oh, wow. like there is an explosion yeah. in our ability to like um, find new planets, to mm. look farther out into space than we could before. And that is really, really interesting. That is interesting. But of those 5,000 exoplanets that we have confirmed, just a few of them are within that Goldilocks zone. Mm. Um, and then even fewer than that, do scientists believe that they could potentially support right. life? So, But one of the most likely candidates that has been found is the planner Kepler-442b. 44, eh, Sorry, there are a lot of Keplers, and I kept getting them yeah. mixed up. <laughs> but I am talking about Kepler-442b. So it's a lot like the planet Sagan in uh, The Last Quintista. Uh, it's located much closer to its star than Earth is to the mm -hmm. sun, but the uh, star is much less bright than our okay. sun. Um, so, But the biggest problem is that it's a lot bigger and has a larger mass than Earth. So if we actually ever made it there, um, gravity, we'd find that yeah. gravity was 30% stronger, which apparently is obviously not ideal, but it is apparently livable. We huh. could do it. It doesn't sound fun, but we could do it. Uh, the other problem is that it is 1,120 light years away from us. So not only uh, would that be a super long trip, but actually our telescopes can't see it too well. Too well. So, you know, everybody, everybody, um, you know, wait with bated breath to, to find out if, yeah. if we're going to get to Kepler-442b anytime soon. Oh, I, I, I don't know. Oh, man. More research required. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm getting over a cold. Uh, and so one last curiosity that I had, All right. but it's kind of a big one. So if you had to introduce a whole society to the very concept of stories, like if you met a group of people who had literally never heard any kind of story in their lives, 
what stories would you choose to tell them? So what books or movies or fairy tales would you start with? That's a hard question. That's I, an extremely hard question. Yeah, I, I <laughs> do not know. And I know um, in the book, Petra does give some, um, she talks about some of the stories that were the relics that, as they're called, the relics mm-hmm. that um, when they first came on, a very endearing character had. <laughs> um, and one of those were uh, was uh, Neil Gaiman's um, Norse mythology, and I, mm-hmm. I definitely think that one. I, I know as a homeschooler, we used that book quite a bit when oh, we yeah. were talking it's, about like Greek mythology, and so I it's think a fantastic example been, of like exactly. folktale and culture. And- yeah. Beyond that, though, I'm like I don't know. Yeah, um, <laughs> just that book. No, I'm you kidding. know, would I have a, a, a couple of different Bibles? So, like, would I have like a Christian Bible? Would I have, you know, uh, the Quran? Would I have like, would I have some of those? Because that, those are also stories within there. Like, mm-hmm. would that be an acceptable? Yeah, or um, would you choose, you know, fiction that meant a lot to you? Like, right. we all have those stories, either you know, books mm-hmm. or movies or TV shows or what have you that you know we watched at a particular time in our life and they meant a lot to us and they kind of shaped our worldview. Right. Uh, so would you include some of those? I don't know. I don't know. But so, yeah, the reason that I pose this hypothetical question that no one can answer is because in the book, it does list a few of the uh, titles that like Petra has access to in the, you know, future world with no stories. And I just thought it was really interesting what books the author chose to include in Petra's like library, right? So she has Neil Gaiman's North Mythology yep. in all of his books. She's got uh, Douglas Adams, who wrote uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, specifically The Wizard of Earthsea, which is a fantastic book. Uh, Octavia Butler, Butler. Um, who's another uh, fantastic science fiction mm-hmm. author. Kurt Vonnegut, who writes a lot of, how would you describe Kurt Vonnegut? Satire. Um, I don't think I've read any, you know, because I'm the mystery of- and like detective, like, <laughs> I'm not sure I bring any mystery and detective books with me because I think that, I don't know. I'm not sure I bring any I of mean, those, but that's my, maybe you would, maybe you'd want thing. them to know who Stacy is. Maybe. Um, and also Toni Morrison. And mm-hmm. then the one that made me laugh the hardest though, was that it included, uh, R.L. Stein, who is the author of the Goosebumps books, which are great books, but would you include those? I don't know. Maybe you would. Uh, and, and also others yeah. probably that weren't mentioned here. But I don't know if you if you would, but so I was thinking, you know, R.L. Stein maybe for some some levity. I mean, you <laughs> know, just like something that takes your mind off of everything else and just is just good old crazy yeah. reading. <laughs> would you include some just like fun fiction, yeah. just like your favorite goofy novel that you I don't know reread when you feel sad? It's an interesting question. It is that has no answer, and it it probably I you know. Maybe in this book, the author probably picked, like you said, um, authors oh. and books that were, you know, maybe important to her. So mm-hmm. maybe if you are the one that was taking care of the ship, that yeah, your your books would be ones that are important to you. And I think um, that would definitely it would need some thought in there. Yeah, a whole like centuries worth of thought. Yeah, at least three hundred and eighty years yes. worth. So kind of fun, kind of fun to think about. Maybe that's your homework, listeners, for you to think about. If you were to um, put a library on a spacecraft that is going to be journeying to a new planet to set up a civilization, what books would you bring? What do you think would be important? Ponder those things. (laughs) So let's get ready to close it out, though. We have a book next month, right, Liz? 
Yes, for next month, I was given the power to choose, so I chose to make Stacey get out of her comfort zone and read some fantasy. Not high fantasy, uh, set in a totally different world, but some reality-based low fantasy. So next month, we will be reading V.E. Schwab's Gallant. Mm. Let me give you a quick synopsis here. All her life, Olivia Pryor has wondered who she truly is and where she belongs. Her only clue is a slim, battered journal. Her mother's journal, full of entries that seem to show that she was unraveling and drawings that look like blots of ink, until Olivia notices a hand, a door, a bloom, and a skull. Then a letter beckons Olivia home to Gallant, the one place her mother's journal warns her never to go. Olivia goes anyway. Of course she does. What she finds is her last living relative and her family's manor, a manor with a ballroom and a sitting room and a study and a sprawling, vibrant garden and the crumbling ruin of a garden wall with an iron door, a door she must never open. But no one at Gallant sent Olivia that letter, and no one will tell her what haunts her cousin's dreams, what happened to her mother, or what lies on the other side of the wall. Did the shadows call Olivia home? What will they ask of her in return? Okay, I think I'm going to love this, because I, I think it's like a mystery within a fantasy. And... That might be right up my alley. So, you, so you Liz, go. you might have picked, like, the perfect book for me. I don't know. We'll see. Tune in next time to find <laughs> out if it is indeed the perfect book. The perfect book. <laughs> so thank you for listening to the Curious Reader Podcast. We are always grateful when you tune in. And don't forget to review us on Podbean or in your favorite podcast app. Remember, your reviews plus liking and subscribing help others discover our podcast. So please click that heart or give us a thumbs up to share the love of reading and discovering something new. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book.